to the Asynchronous Lecture Podcast for our course in theories of counseling and psychotherapy. Today we're going to be covering feminist therapy. This is an area where uh, we see a big intersection of the political sphere, the therapeutic sphere, and um, we'll talk about some disparities um, that come up in this area. But before we jump into that, let's take a mindful moment to gather ourselves and settle before we dive in. y'all let's find ourselves in a grounding stabilizing position you may consider planting your feet firmly on the floor as you elongate your spine if it's safe and appropriate for you to do so physically and start drawing your attention to your breath gently noticing as you start to intentionally deepen your breath allowing your mind to settle allowing your body to settle. Shift your attention to your heart. Let's focus on your physical heart space in this moment, gently noticing if your heart is racing or if it's still and steady. And shifting now our focus to your emotional heart, gently noticing what's there for you in this moment. As you continue to deepen your breath, perhaps you need to give yourself permission to let go of some things today, to let go of the to-do lists, to let go of what's happening after you listen to this, to let go of what happened before, and allow yourself to exist in this moment in time and space. Allow yourself some gratitude and self-compassion for prioritizing your education in the midst of everything you have going on. We'll take a few moments of deep breathing here as you focus on these things. And now as you start to re-enter the physical space in which you occupy, and prepare yourself for our educational exploration of feminist therapy. All right, feminist therapy, y'all. This is another more philosophical approach to therapy and counseling rather than being a technique-heavy battery of things that you use in the moment. Um, The big key with feminist therapy is to be mindful of the unique experiences that women have, um, especially around intersectionality. So women of color, queer women, especially um, as these are areas our society still struggles with significantly. Um, We would think surely by now that uh, we would be past some of these things or we would have moved through them or at least be willing to acknowledge them as Uh, actually happening and worth our attention. But women have only had the right to vote for 100 years. Um, So the right to vote is about as old as the field of psychotherapy at large. It's not that, uh, it's not as seasoned as it should be. It should be this well-seasoned dish that we all are just completely accepting of. But we still even debate over what the word feminist means. 
Um, Does feminism mean that we think women are better than men and that we have the right to take over the world and run things? No, feminism is seeking equality. It's really seeking justice. So there's a lot of political overlap into the way that a professional may incorporate feminism or feminist therapy into their psychotherapeutic practice. So to take it back into the history a bit, your book goes into some detail about this. We'll cover it um, as an overview here. Um, it started as a grassroots movement. Um, feminism therapy was made by the by the women for the women. And it was in response to what you've likely noticed throughout our course, that this is a very heavily male-dominated environment in terms of who is creating ideas, who gets credit for creating ideas. And many of the women thus far that have been credited with things, such as Natalie Rogers, Miriam Polster, they're spouses of the leading figure. So they're oftentimes forgotten. We often remember Carl Rogers. We forget about Natalie Rogers. Um, So there is still a strong need for representation of women in this field. Women are viewed as nurturers, so we tend to fit into this field nicely, but we're not also viewed as capable clinicians, these scientists who can analyze um, what's happening in the here and now, what's happening in the therapy room. And there's a perception that we are good at what we do, but we're not great because we don't have this higher thinking capacity. This movement really started in the 1800s with the suffragettes. That's considered the first wave of feminism. And the second wave was in the 1960s when we saw that big push around civil rights um, for Black people and for Hispanic people, as well as women's rights. And I think there's a lot behind Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well and the legal work she was doing um, so women could have a credit card, buy a car, um, do things without their husband having to be present and vouch for them. Feminist therapy became an organized idea around the 1980s uh, when women were noticing that We were being left out of the psychotherapeutic space when it came to being professionals. Um, Women are often viewed as being nurturers or caregivers um, by this kind of intuitive nature um, in our biology. So we fit neatly into these roles of being nurturing, caring people. But it wasn't until the 1950s or 60s with Carl Rogers and person-centered therapy that therapy was considered a nurturing environment at all. So there were kind of phases of work that had to be done in order for women to really insert themselves into this space. And it was an effortful uh, foot in the door to have women recognized in therapy and recognized that not only are female practitioners valid um, as nurturers and as clinical analysts and scientists, um, but that female patients or clients also had different needs. We're experiencing a different type of oppression and societal pressures compared to their male counterparts. So the identity of women was still largely absent from the field. And it was in the 1980s that the push came uh, to have feminism as a modality of therapy, as a philosophical approach, really began. And to be clear on this, that a feminist is not necessarily a female or someone who presents as a woman. 
Um, it can be any person of any sex or gender can be a feminist, can be in the fight for women's equality. And feminist therapy, especially, as aforementioned, it has a lot of ties with uh, social justice and the political sphere as well. So it tends to be integrated in these areas as a philosophical orientation. It's essential, if you are practicing with a feminist perspective, to consider social, cultural, and political contexts that contribute to a person's problems in order to understand them. So, of course, taking that phenomenological perspective that we hear so much about in this course, but also remembering these other systems of oppression that exist and influence who we are. And oftentimes, the client or the individual isn't aware of it, or they might be aware of parts of it. So sometimes our job in this role can be to illuminate, like, I wonder if this is happening, or I wonder if you feel this way because of these bigger societal issues or these bigger societal pressures and assumptions. Sometimes it can be helpful. Sometimes the person still feels like that's not what's correct for them, and that's okay. But bringing it into their awareness and being um, educational in that way as we can be as counselors and therapists, sometimes that can be really helpful for people, especially for women, to recognize, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. This is a real thing. This is really happening to women all around me. I thought it was just me. There's even a book out there, a, a feminist book titled, I Thought It Was Just Me. One of the ways that feminist, the feminist perspective can be really useful is that it opens up the conversation. It opens up the idea that people of other genders and people who may be fluid on the gender spectrum or questioning where they're at on the gender spectrum, it opens up ourselves and it opens up our therapeutic space to not just be accepting or tolerant of these individuals, but to really understand and seek to understand them in the space that they're in. In terms of founding members of feminist theory, as we talked about with that brief historical overview, there's not really one person or any specific individuals that can be given full credit for this, which also feels a little bit um, ironic because women oftentimes in the world of psychotherapy aren't given credit uh, for things that they're doing or their husbands get the primary credit and they're kind of an afterthought. So Jerry Corey in your book does mention Laura Brown, who is a founding member of the Feminist Therapy Institute. And there are a growing number of professional organizations that are supporting women in psychology, providing resources um, for people who practice with women and providing resources for um, people who are working with women with complex intersectionality. Uh, through the American Psychological Association, um, Division 35 is dedicated to the psychology of women. And there's also the Association for Women in Psychology. Feminist theory adopts a few different perspectives that are notably absent from basically all other modalities of therapy that we've discussed or will be discussed in this class. Uh, this is the one that really captures the multicultural and intersectional aspects of humanity that everyone else left out. So leave it to women and leave it to women of color to make sure that everyone's being counted. That's a strength that I think we bring and a strength that our feminist male counterparts um, bring as well. 
This includes the gender fair approach, which explains the differences in behavior of men and women, and that they are simply differences, not strengths and weaknesses, simply differences. The flexible multicultural perspective can apply equally to individuals and to groups, and the interactionist view is specific to the thinking, feeling, and behaving dimensions. Feminist therapists are also noted for having a lifespan perspective that assumes human development is a lifelong process. This was something that Eric Erickson did um, note in his psychosocial development theory. Um, You'll remember that Freud was like, yeah, once you're 12, you kind of just want to have sex, and that's pretty much the end of your human development. Uh, So feminists adopt the lifespan perspective. We keep developing. We keep changing throughout all of our years. In terms of personality development, the societal gender role expectations are found to profoundly influence a person's identity from or even before birth. And this is something that I think so many of us have questions about. And it brings us to one of the classic questions of psychology. Is it nature or is it nurture? Is it the genetics that we have and what we carry within us in our DNA and our makeup, or is it the way we're raised, the environments we're in that has the strongest impact? And like most things in psychology, the answer is both. So from twin studies and adoption studies, we have clear evidence that there is a genetic component to these things, but from a lot of other researcher research, we have strong evidence that suggests The things that we teach our young ones and the ways that we model how they're supposed to exist in the world have a strong impact on them. Uh, We just covered in my SRJC Psych 101 class, we just covered sex and gender. It was so revolutionary when Kate Middleton and Prince William let their son go to ballet class. So the future king of England at the ripe old age of five um, wanted to be a ballet dancer. And his parents said, absolutely, let's do it. And he plays with dolls and he has feminine colored clothing, stereotypically pinks and purples and things like that. And he is just the happiest, cutest little kid. So the they're combating some of those societal gender roles from an early age. But imagine and think about when a woman announces that she's pregnant and there's going to be a baby shower, or they're going to decorate the nursery. Everybody wants to know what the sex of the baby is. And from that, from determining the biological sex, the sex organs that little person who's not even born yet has, they've decided if they're going to have more feminine objects and clothing, um, or if they're going to have more masculine objects and clothing. And I've noticed too, when we talk to little girls, we say really sweet, endearing things like sweetheart and, oh, love, how are you doing? Whereas with young men, little boys, we say uh, or use language that's much more um, equal, like buddy, partner, pal, demonstrating some type of equality between us, where when we use that really um, kind of minimizing language of like sweetheart or my little one, little lady, um, that we're tending to kind of box in a bit with that. Just something to be curious about. So in the feminist perspective, we do feel strongly that societal gender role expectations before birth, after birth, profoundly influence our identity. And there's recognition that females, so 
biologically genetic females are raised in a culture grounded in sexism. And it's important for us to understand the internalized oppression. It's central to being a feminist therapist to recognize that just because I happen to have female genitalia um, and female secondary sex characteristics, I've been treated a certain way. And it has not been a way of kindness or a way of encouragement and elevation. It has been a way of minimizing, being boxed in, being told, I can't. I'd like to backtrack for a moment to capture something that I missed in my first take as I was rethinking about some of the things that I said I had mentioned that uh, it's been women and women of color and our male feminist allies who seem to have this gift of inclusion and making sure that people are being counted. And this is a limited thought. What I would like to expand is including folks all over the gender spectrum, Um, that it's not just male allies who are some of our best supporters, but it's oftentimes people who are in different uh, gender spaces, um, or maybe aren't ascribing to any gender labels that sometimes understand the oppression that women tend to feel societally in really deep and profound ways as they've experienced similar things. So I wanted to take a moment to open that up and catch myself. Now I'm going to move forward to discussing relational cultural theory. It's abbreviated as RCT, and it emphasizes the vital role that relationships and connectedness with others play in the lives of women. Women do have a neurological propensity or leaning towards um, what some people minimize and refer to as the gift of gab, um, but being very relational in the way we talk about things. Men tend to be very reporter-like in their style of uh, retelling of events, like this is what happened just the facts, just the details. Whereas women have this neurological inclination um, to share more details about it and to commiserate with each other. And, oh, I had an experience like that, or here's something similar that happened to me. And connectedness is a strong value for many women. So when we feel isolated or when we feel disconnected from others, it's not just loneliness. It impacts your sense of meaning, or it can impact your sense of meaning or identity. Why don't people want to be around me? Is there something wrong with me? Am I crazy? Am I too much? So relational cultural theory emphasizes that relationships and connectedness with others plays a vital role in the lives of women. It honors that part that exists in so many of us. So therapists adopting the RCT approach aim to reduce the suffering caused by disconnection and isolation, to increase clients' capacity for relational resilience, to develop mutual empathy and mutual empowerment, and to foster social justice. Feminist therapy is a space where you can get your soapbox out, and you can and likely should be striving to make societal changes. Sometimes that starts in ourselves and in our own families, our own homes. Sometimes we can ignite this in clients, and it can also look like um, civic engagement. Um, If there is a, um, like a rally, maybe you go to the rally um, to show your support and to be part of the community. 
uh, practice what you preach. Or if there's legislation on the Hill that you support that is in favor of women, like how Betsy DeVos, the uh, soon-to-be former Secretary of Education, rescinded Title IX protections in the realm of education. This protected people against sexual harassment. Um, and this was something that a lot of people really counted on, this right being there, this Title IX protection. And she removed that. So a feminist therapist may get actively involved in the political sphere for that to be reinstated. And I'm confident that whoever the next Secretary of Education is will bring that back. And maybe it'll be even better than it was before. But it should at least be there. Some of the major driving principles of feminist therapy are that the personal is political. We can't separate it out. Um, and I think this applies to not only women, but to people of color and people who have been marginalized by our society. The personal is political. And critical consciousness is also a key concept. People who practice feminist therapy are committed to social change. We practice what we preach. It's not just saying, yeah, someone should do something about that. But recognizing that as counselors and therapists in roles of helping and healing in our communities, we hold power and we hold privilege in that seat and we can do something with it. Another principle is that women's and girls' voices and ways of knowing and the voices of others who have been oppressed are valued. Not just heard and waited until they're done talking so we can move on to the next agenda item, but valued. The things that you have to say as a woman or as a girl is important, and this includes other marginalized and oppressed people groups. The relationship between counselor and client is egalitarian. Feminist therapy focuses on strengths and a reformulated definition of psychological distress. Diagnostics have not been kind to women ever in the history of medicine and in the history of psychology, which followed in the footsteps of its uninformed older brother, the medical field. Women are diagnosed with rates of depression significantly more often than men, when maybe we're just missing some social connectedness, which is an essential part of our being, according to feminist therapy, feminist theory. Um, so maybe I don't need antidepressants. Maybe I need a better friend group or a new group to connect with, um, to try something, to get out of myself and be with others, decrease my isolation. Um, other diagnoses such as borderline personality disorder are over-attributed to women as well. Um, there used to be a diagnosis of hysteria, which was basically theorized that all women are hysterical, um, that they're too much, too big, too loud and that it was pathological. Histrionic personality disorder is also one that's over-attributed to women. Um, that one includes uh, grandiosity in behavior. Everything is really big. Everything's very dramatic. Um, and this is one that is, again, over-prescribed uh, to women. In the realm of medicine, I'll just briefly share that there, the original medical model was based off of male anatomy, which was considered to be um, healthy and well, was to be male, to have male anatomy. Um, the female anatomy was considered to be like a deterrent um, or considered to be a variable where they didn't really understand it. They didn't really know what to do with it. 
Most of it seemed to be really finicky and require a lot of maintenance. So they decided that the majority of the female anatomy was also pathological. So we are reformulating what psychological distress is as feminist therapists and how it applies to women. And as much of feminist therapy does, we can also apply this to other groups who have been oppressed. All types of oppression are recognized along with the connections among them. So again, this started off as a movement by women for women, and it kind of turned into a movement by women for everyone who's also been oppressed. Um, as we started doing this work, we realized, oh, it's, you know, it's not just me. You've also been put down by society simply because you're a woman, but even more so because you're a black woman. Um, or you've experienced significant societal oppression because you are a person of color. So we have something in common here. And there are things we can do um, to transform the field of therapy to be more inclusive around this. What are some things that feminist therapists do? They help their clients become aware of their own gender role socialization. Do you agree with this? You behave in these ways that you've been trained to believe and behave. Does that work for you? Sometimes the answer is, yeah, I'm good with that. It doesn't really bother me. I'm okay with this part. Okay, that's that's good to know. Um, and sometimes it's, you know what? I, I'm not okay with that. I want to restructure this or I want to rethink this. Okay, let's look at that. We help our clients identify their internalized messages of oppression and replace them with more self-enhancing beliefs. This can be tricky because oppression hasn't ended. Just because we have feminist therapy doesn't mean that we've solved the sexism issue. It doesn't mean we've solved any of the ism issues, being uh, racism and systemic oppression, um, poverty and homelessness, um, the overcriminalization of people of color, the overcriminalization of drug and substance use, we haven't solved any of it. So this can be a little bit tricky at times, trying to find realistic, self-enhancing beliefs, who you are as a person. We're working on changing society, but it's going to take time, and we're not going to see those changes come to full fruition in our lifetime. Let's be real. That doesn't mean we stop trying, but in the room with our client, I think that we really need to focus on your personhood, who you are as an individual, while we continue fighting this fight. Feminist therapists also help their clients understand how sexist and oppressive societal beliefs and practices influence them in negative ways. We also acquire skills to help bring about change in the environment. We're teaching these to our clients. We help them develop a wide range of behaviors that are freely chosen. You've been told that you're too loud. You've been told that your anger is too big. Your joy is too big. Let's give you some freedom. Let's figure out how we release those old stories of oppression so that you have the freedom to express yourself. We also help restructure institutions to rid them of discriminatory practices. Um, let's say your client um, runs into a situation at work where they're experiencing oppression. Part of the work you may do is exploring with them, okay, what are we going to do about it? What would you like to do with, about it? Maybe it's um, writing a letter or having a meeting, um, talking to coworkers. There's a lot of things you can do around that. But remember that we are active in the political and social justice spheres. We practice what we preach. We don't just validate, normalize, and move on. 
We also evaluate the impact of social factors in their lives. In feminist therapy, we help our clients develop a sense of personal and social power. It might be small at first, but identifying that it's there, it's not absent, it is there, even if it's small, and how can we grow it? We help them recognize the power of relationships and connectedness and that it's okay, that it's normal, that you do your best when you have people you feel connected to. It's not depression. It's just that something is missing from your life. We don't need to diagnose you and put you on medication. You are not sick. You just need a little bit of correction in your life. We also teach our clients to trust their own experience and their intuition. So many people, especially women, don't believe that what they've been through is, quote, bad enough. We saw that in the empty chair technique example um, with our Middle Eastern Muslim client who felt like she had said something and their therapist reflected, so you can only feel this way, like you can only feel... Um, as if it's enough, if you were living in some war-torn country, then you're allowed to feel this way? No, no, that's not what I said. It is what you said. I reframed it in this way to highlight that you're feeling um, that the only way this is acceptable, that your experience isn't true unless it's extreme. Your experience doesn't have to be extreme to be valid. We still experience oppression. We still experience sexism, um, even if it's not overt, even if it's not like a full-blown Harry Weinstein situation. Um, but we still experience it on micro levels through microaggressions, um, and we experience it in our daily lives. These are valid. And if something in you is saying, this isn't okay, trust that voice. That's your intuition, and it's wisdom. Feminist therapy is known for being anti-assessment and anti-diagnosis. And as we've illustrated a bit earlier in this uh, episode here, you can probably understand why. It's been used against us for such a long time. So diagnoses are based on dominant culture's view of normalcy, and it cannot account for cultural differences. And truth be told, even the DSM-5, with all of its revisions and the millions of dollars they spent trying to fix it, still doesn't really do this. There are deep critical flaws in the entire diagnostic process and mindset that do not address cultural differences. We're still pathologizing normal existence because we don't understand it. Feminist therapists have been sharply critical of DSM classification system, including the current DSM-5 edition. There's a lot we can say on that. When you have your psychopathology class, you'll talk more about the DSM-5 and you'll be able to form some of your own thoughts, feelings, and opinions about it. I'm hesitant to give you an excess of my own and to skew what you might think. Um, but there are some resources. A lot of people are talking about this and how the DSM-5 is still highly flawed and how it's hurting people. Um, so if you're interested in those, let me know and I'll share those resources that I have with you because um, it's important to hear voices aside from my own on this topic. The critique is based on research indicating that gender, culture, and race may influence assessment of clients' symptoms. A 
Of the few techniques that exist in the feminist therapy wheelhouse, they're pretty straightforward, which is lovely. We use empowerment, self-disclosure, gender role or societal identity analysis, gender role intervention, power analysis, assertiveness training, reframing and relabeling, social action, and bibliotherapy, which is using books and outside media to um, encourage exploration. See what other people have said about this. Women for decades and centuries have felt the way that you do. Um, and I think there's a lot of value in knowing where we're from and the places that we've come from as a group and how that might change how we see ourselves today and reading some works by women today and how that might influence how you think and feel. One of the things I stumbled across as I was preparing for this lecture um, was this list of feminist podcasts. And one, I know you're tired of podcasts, um, but one of them that really stood out to me was a all-female scientific expedition in Antarctica. And they recorded a limited series podcast of their experience while they were there, of the conversations that came up and themes that emerged What's it like for 76 women to be living together on a desolate ice chip in the middle of the Arctic Ocean? And what it was like when a man came to visit. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. It's just a different perspective. And we're seeing um, more of feminist voices coming forward, especially because it's so easy to make a podcast these days. Um, so there's a lot of pro-feminist um podcasts that are out there. Um, one of the ones that I really like is around women in the sport of rock climbing. It's a hobby that um, I'm interested in, and I'm usually the only woman there. I know a couple of other female climbers, and of course, they don't live near me. So when I go rock climbing with people, it's usually a bunch of men, which is you know, it's not bad, but it's different and it's hard. And there are challenges about being a woman in that environment, especially when it's competitive and physically driven. Um, but female rock climbers are making a name for themselves professionally and they're speaking out about um, how they have been oppressed and how the sport of rock climbing has edged us out um, and treated us unfairly. So it's really interesting to hear that. And it gets pretty detailed and pretty deep and intense um, so opening yourself up to other voices um, and maybe areas that you're not familiar with. Like I've cited things that are within my wheelhouse um, as a feminist. So I could do with some um, exploration myself of opening myself up to some more diversity, even in my feminist approach. And we can use feminist um, theory in group work as well. So how do men play into all of this? Is this a girls only club? No, absolutely not. In fact, if this was only a girls or a, a girls only club or women only, then this isn't going to go anywhere. Um, we make up half the population. We know how frustrating it is to leave out half of the population. That's been our lives. So inviting men into the feminist therapy sphere is not only beneficial to us in terms of making gains in our agenda that we have of promoting equality, but y'all deserve to be here too. Um, so male feminist therapists are willing to understand and own their male privilege, are able to confront sexist behavior in themselves and in others, are willing to redefine masculinity and femininity, 
And there's a lot of great work being done around toxic masculinity right now. It makes me so excited to see. Um, Male feminist therapists are also willing to work towards establishing egalitarian relationships. And a big part of this is having to check your privilege and um, taking an active one down stance at times in order to promote that egalitarian connection. Y'all are also willing to engage in and support women's efforts to create a just society, which means um, promoting one of those feminist values of not only listening, but valuing the voices of women and girls and other oppressed groups. So how does feminist therapy play out in group work? Well, group provides an outlet for social support and political action. I, on my own, don't feel comfortable going to a women's march or a rally of some sort, but if I've got some people with me and I have a group, then I feel a lot more comfortable going. Groups also form a diverse community where members can share the goal of supporting women's experiences. We've talked about women of color. There's also women with disabilities. Women with disabilities, chronic illness, and chronic pain um, have been silent for a long, long time. And this is one of the things that I've been working on, especially as I'm getting closer to um, my license and being private practice eligible, is to have support groups specifically for women with chronic illnesses, pain, and disabilities. Because oftentimes we'll give a report, my pain is a 10 out of 10 today, and the doctor thinks we're exaggerating, that we're just trying to get pills or we're just trying to get attention. Yes, I am trying to get attention because my pain is a 10 out of 10 today, and I would like some support, please. That's why I'm paying you. So having a a diverse community of women where we're hearing each other's stories and recognizing not only is it not just me, but there are other aspects of oppression um, towards women that I wasn't aware of before and I want to do something about. And the group setting decreases feelings of isolation and loneliness, which, as was discussed earlier, is a significant core issue for many women. Self-disclosure is emphasized for the group leader, which is unique. Oftentimes in groups, the leader is a bit or quite removed. They're really there to facilitate the group or to provide psychoeducation. They're not really sharing a lot about themselves. So this is unique to feminist therapy work. Self-disclosure and um, to facilitate self-exploration within members of the group. And it promotes that egalitarian relationship. Group work also provides a setting where clients learn to use power appropriately by providing support for each other and taking social or political actions. From a diversity perspective, feminist therapy has the most in common with the multicultural and social justice perspectives, which, again, are absent from essentially every other approach. We have to work them in. Another strength is that clinicians are striving to create an egalitarian relationship and collaborate in setting goals and choosing strategies. And feminist therapists believe that psychotherapy is inextricably bound to culture. So we don't have to shove these ideas of cultural awareness into a theory that wasn't made for them or to a theory that kind of welcomes them in, but we have to wiggle them in a little bit. No, these are inextricably connected. Some limitations and criticisms of feminist counseling. We have to be mindful to identify any sources of our own bias and work towards restructuring in any of the theories that we use, um, but especially feminist therapy, because there is such an emotional charge behind it. 
And this can influence our clients, especially those who may lack a strong sense of their own selves. If we put too much of ourselves out there as the practitioners and the clients don't have a strong sense of self, they'll pick up whatever we're putting out there. And while we may kind of like that in a sense, because we tend to like ourselves and what we believe and feel passionately about it, it's unethical. We want our clients to have their own thoughts, feelings, and beliefs, not just take on ours because they're not sure what else to do. It's important for us then to call attention to clients' unexamined choices and to honor their choices as long as they are informed. Because we're dealing with such heavily contextual or environmental factors, this can have a strong tendency to detract from exploring the intrapsychic domain. We can get stuck on exploring the systems of oppression and the past stories and these external factors and neglect the thoughts, feelings, and beliefs of the person sitting right in front of you. And a strong criticism of feminist therapy that I'd have to agree with is that training is not often offered. When it is, it's sporadic, it's not systemic, and there's not um, a sense of quality control around it. So you can have a lot of therapists running around like, I'm a feminist therapist, and they don't really know what they're talking about. Um, they're not aware of things they need to be aware of in order to be an effective feminist therapist. Um, so the lack of a kind of congruence and cohesion amongst feminist therapists um, is a strong and I think somewhat valid critique of using this method. Limitations from a diversity perspective. When advocating for change in the social structure, we innately bring our own values with us. And feminist therapy can be a little bit tricky because your feminist values may be different than your client's feminist values. There's different types of feminism. So don't make the assumption that just because they say they're a feminist or you're providing feminist-oriented therapy that you agree on this. So we want to be mindful around that so we're not encouraging our clients to take social actions that they don't agree with. If therapists don't fully understand and respect the cultural values of their clients from diverse groups, they run the risk of imposing their own values. Feminist theory... Feminist therapy has some contributions from multicultural and social justice perspectives. It has paved the way for gender-sensitive practice and an awareness of the impact of the cultural context and multiple oppressions. It has an emphasis on social change, which can lead to transformation in society, and it has made significant theoretical and professional advances in counseling practice. It's also called to attention child abuse, incest, rape, sexual harassment, and domestic violence. These are also areas where we've been told over centuries and decades and um, so many stories of I wasn't believed or I didn't think it was bad enough that I should talk to somebody. Another contribution is that feminist therapy has demanded action in cases of sexual misconduct at a time when male therapists misused trust placed in them by their female clients. The principles and techniques of feminist therapy can incorporate into many therapy models. All right, y'all, that wraps up our exploration of feminist therapy. 
My plan for us in our synchronous learning is to do some small group discussion and I'll have some questions for us to work with um, to continue exploring this together. Um, since, you know, being together, having connectedness is such an essential part of this theory, let's practice it together. I've also included a number of optional resources on Canvas for you. They are optional. Um, just there if you're curious about other perspectives or other resources that are out there, if this theory is really calling out to you. So if you have the chance to take a look at those, please do. And if not, we'll see you in class for our discussion either way. Take good care.